What creates the best space and intersection between civil engineers and landscape architects is when we're kind of both playing for the same team with the same outcomes. Hi, I'm Jen. I'm Katie. And you're listening to Urban Speak, created by the team at Urban Systems. We're speaking with fellow urbanites about the creative and innovative ways our practice areas collaborate to better serve vibrant communities. We all know we have a special language here, so it's time to let the world in on it. Welcome to Urban Speak, another episode. We're really excited about this one. Um, um, We're back with more practice-based content. And we're centering two disciplines uh, for this episode, landscape architecture and civil engineering. Or we have likened to shortening the name to uh, uh, engineering, which is maybe a word that we've made up. Uh, Hopefully we can tease it apart in the next half an hour to 45 minutes that we have together. We're talking human-centered, we're talking functional, functional. we're talking talking aesthetics, aesthetics. Uh, but Uh, mostly mostly we're talking talking about about how how these characteristics characteristics come together in projects where landscape architecture and civil engineers are working together to create really great places. So in order to dig into this, we have two very talented and thoughtful folks joining us from the Urban Systems Network. We have Amy McGowan, who is a civil engineer and a branch manager from our Fort McMurray office, and Shasta McCoy, a landscape architect and community enhancement specialist from our Kamloops office. We recognize that Urban Speak and and Urban Systems has offices across Western Canada and many traditional territories fall within those kind of rough borders. Um, And we work with many communities. And so it's important for our team here to recognize the places that we we live and work on. We are fortunate enough to be joining from all different locations. And so uh, we'll uh, each each provide a land acknowledgement for our region as an effort to contribute to awareness and acknowledgement of the Indigenous peoples of this land. I will start. I'm in Calgary, which is Treaty 7 territory and also uh, the home to the Métis Nation Region 3. And I will pass it over to Katie. So I am calling in from Kamloops, which is situated on the traditional and unceded Shwetmik territory. And I will toss it to Shasta. I am speaking to you today from Kelowna, which is uh, the unceded and ancestral territory of the Silix people. Uh, I guess that leaves me. (laughs) Uh, I'd like to gratefully acknowledge uh, the land where I am today and where I have the uh, opportunity to live and work is traditional territory of Cree, Dene, and Métis people uh, within Treaty 8 territory uh, in northern Alberta and Fort McMurray. Thanks everyone for um, bringing those acknowledgements to the podcast. Uh, and uh, let's dig into what we're about here to talk to today. <laughs> so those were brief intros, but our first two I questions are going to dig into to who they are. And the questions are, what was your first concert? And if you had to describe your role, your position, your day-to-day to a, a niece or nephew at a barbecue, how would you describe it? Um, well, thanks. First of all, I guess, uh, Jen and Katie for having us today. This is really exciting. I uh, look forward to chatting with you all. Um, my first concert was Savage Garden. 
Uh, after playing their CD on repeat enough times uh, for my parents to probably uh, take away my CD player, <laughs> we went to their concert. <laughs> so that was exciting. Um, second, if I were describing my work, long story short, I, I help design and build our communities. Um, so I work with people on a day-to-day -day basis to build everything from our roads to making sure your taps turn on and your toilets flush to making sure you have a favorite park to go to. Um, anything you can think of in your in your environment. Um, that's how I would describe it in short, short form. Okay, Shasta, I'm going to turn it over to you um, and ask those same two questions. Well, uh, thank you for inviting me to be a part of this conversation. Um, if I were describing landscape architecture to a child, uh, I would probably lead with uh, the fact that we get to draw and color for our job a lot. Uh, it's not all that we do. Uh, we uh, plan public space, including parks and streets and cemeteries uh, and natural areas. But usually when we're communicating how those spaces are shaped, we're doing a lot of drawing and coloring. Very cool. I think I would want to be a landscape architect if that was the description <laughs> Based given. Based on that description. <laughs> um, and I guess the going back to first concert, if you... Oh, I forgot to tell you that. So this is going to make it sound like I'm older than I am, but I should just mention that I saw this concert like maybe 30 years after this band was actually like on the charts. And it was the Beach Boys. <laughs> Ooh, <laughs> nice. Not in the 60s, <laughs> but rather in the 90s. Shasta, you age well. Yeah, I was <laughs> always into the oldies. What's your favorite Beach Boys song? Oh, that's a good question. Um, probably Deuce Coop. I think it's about a car. <laughs> but it sounds like they're having a lot of fun going fast. So, <laughs> Knowing you, I was going to guess surfing in the... <laughs> <laughs> right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Nice. Cool. Well, thank you both for um, indulging us in those two kind of opener questions. So I guess digging into a bit more of the land engineering topics, we've kind of briefly provided an overview in that first piece around what your practice areas are and how you would describe them in plain language. But we'd be keen to, to dig more into that. So, I mean, for Shasta, what is landscape architecture? And, and Amy, what is civil engineering? I don't know if there's additional pieces that you would want to bring into it or the nuances of turning the taps on and flushing the toilets and uh, or, the uh, or the intricacies of, of coloring and drawing that build to create these really impactful professions. Maybe I'll uh, ask Shasta to go um, take the lead on, on what is landscape architecture. Sure, absolutely. So uh, you couldn't think of landscape architecture as maybe being a profession that grows out of an intersection between art and science. And we operate usually in sort of three realms in a very simplistic way, which would be waterscapes, uh, softscapes, which include plantings and soils, and, and hardscapes. And so most of our work is, is around organizing and, and arranging those three elements on a site. In, in addition to that, uh, you can sort of weave in other things as well, including 
identity and storytelling. And necessarily, when you bring all those things together, what you end up with is an aesthetic uh, attribute as well. Oftentimes, we find ourselves making places uh, beautiful and, and that being uh, a big driver in what we do, but not the only driver. I love it. I like the, um, like my neat organized planner brain is like seeing a Venn diagram of waterscapes, softscapes and hardscapes. Um, that was a really simple, lovely way to describe landscape architecture. Uh, and then the weaving in of like these different vines of identity and storytelling and how they all come together to create these beautiful public spaces. That's a nugget I'm taking um, away from this already. Amy, is there ways that you would want to add onto your definition of, of civil engineering? I think, I mean, not to get too basic, but I think foundations are important. Like engineering in and of itself is an applied science. Right. So we take the practices of physics, of math, of chemistry, all elements of science and apply that to the environment. Um, and in the case of civil engineering, it's that science applied to the built environment. And the built environment refers to both the physically built environment and the naturally built environment. So think about the difference between a stormwater pond versus a wetland. Both of those are part of our natural and built environment. And so civil engineering is the practice of applying science to our environment. Um, and civil is often regarded as like the broadest engineering discipline, um, professional discipline. There's lots of different types of engineering, but civil is has a really, really big umbrella. Everything from an environmental engineer to a structural engineer, people who design or consider traffic or design bridges or do airports, like those are all civil engineers. So it's a very, very broad practice. But if we zoom in a little bit to like the urban language, often how civil engineering shows up in our practice and in our service um, is rooted in community. So it's often engineering in our in our built community. Love it. Again, such a good <laughs> definition. Shasta described landscape architecture as the meeting of art and science. And you're talking about science, like all those different realms of science that were taught throughout our lives, and then applying it to the built environment. Great comment that it's a really broad practice area that many people fall within this space but when we think about it at urban it comes down to community my goodness if people aren't getting the connection points between these two practice areas yet <laughs> just wait it's uh it's coming <laughs> in our conversations prior you have described the intersection of landscape architecture and civil engineering as salt and pepper or food and drink pairings in the sense that you may think you only need one, but they're often better together. So like food and drink pairings, how do landscape architecture and civil engineering come together to create these quote unquote ideal projects? Maybe Amy, I will turn it over to you first. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I know that I know the food and beverage analogy was like, just kind of came um, because my mind works in metaphors. Um, but it, the reason I had suggested that is because it really does, there's such a complementary nature between both disciplines and areas of practice. You could bring a civil engineer or engineering team onto a particular project. And given the right context, there are some projects that are truly, you know, in engineering scope, just like there are some projects that are truly just landscape architecture scope. But in most, in most instances, there's really a complementary nature between the two. Um, and it's part of building a whole team. So we, we find those connections ac across our different 
practice areas at Urban all the time, but landscape architecture and civil engineering in particular just really complement one another and create what I like to call the whole brain. So when you're thinking about something, and I'm sure we'll get into this a little later in our conversation today, but as an engineer, there's things that I see and things that I think about, and then things I don't see and things I don't think about. And so I find when I'm working with a landscape architect or a team that involves landscape architects, they're, they're bringing different things to the table, and it's ultimately providing a better, stronger deliverable to our clients and our communities at the end of the day. Is there a, a project that comes to mind where that whole brain has just like come together in a really beautiful way to create a project? that has like stuck out in your mind over the years or you're currently working on, um, would be very intrigued to, to hear that. I think part of what makes our whole brain uh, kind of approach a reality is that there's so much overlap between our two professions. We both think about water and drainage and the shape of sites. And we both think about movement of people and vehicles. There's so much overlap so that when we're solving the same problem together through different lenses, we really um, are able to strengthen each other as we advance a project down the road. And so in public space, uh, whether it's a streetscape project or a park project, regardless of that, the way that we just sort of look at the same problem with a different lens and are able to, to work back and forth through those solutions um, make us a really dynamic team. A lot of our streetscape projects that we work on now um, are combining active transportation, they're combining accessibility, they're combining green infrastructure, managing water in a way that it's reintegrated back into the living matrix of the earth, and combining public art and placemaking and all that interweaving together, I think, has, has manifest in some really special projects. And some that, that come to mind are Columbia Avenue. We won a sustainability award from UBCM for that project. And that was a really amazing uh, opportunity where we, on a main highway through the Kootenays, were able to integrate stormwater back into our tree planting and also realize public art throughout that entire corridor and uh, also have separated cycle tracks for active transportation. It's just this beautiful like marriage of all these different elements of our practice. Yeah, I would second that too. I think maybe just to the actual crux of the question around ideal projects, um, you know, parks projects are a great example uh, or anything where in public space and community you are you are addressing both form and function. So between your discipline of landscape architecture and civil engineering, uh, you get to do both. It's not one or the other. And so it's when you're looking at a, at a site, whether it's brand new development or redevelopment of anything, uh, you are looking at the, the form and function of both. Is there a specific classification of project that you find your two areas work the best on? I know that they intersect, they can intersect in such great ways in a variety of projects, but if you think about if there was one classification, which is probably very hard to do, what do you think that that would be? Well, I don't think it's too hard. I think our streetscapes and corridors that are moving people and water and goods and services, I, I think that's one area that we really shine working together. And we do in parks as well and in public facilities like 
wastewater treatment and some of those types of public facilities, RCMP spaces. Those are all great examples, but I, I really think our sweet spot is streetscapes. And whether it's at the highway scale or whether it's at the, the urban downtown shopping street scale, I always find the most satisfaction in those projects in particular because there's it's so complex. There's so many things at play. There's always existing there's so many existing influences, both uh, in terms of policy and in terms of actual things like power lines and surprise duct banks and <laughs> surprise <laughs> this and that buried in the ground. I really see corridors as being where we shine. That's really interesting that you brought up duct banks. It just makes me think, so like when I think of a project, I often think about it in physical space. So I'll think about like under the ground, start at the worms and like work your way up through the soil stratigraphy or the road structure or whatever it is you have. What's on surface in terms of the actual treatment, softscape, hardscape uh, function, um, and then the uses of the space. How does it get activated? What happens? And then kind of like that overall view as you start to zoom out. But those projects like streetscapes are a fantastic example. Shasta, because anytime you have something that really goes through that whole vertical access, like all the way from what's underground, whether it's hard infrastructure that you're having to deal with, all the way through to like the the vision and use and activation of space, that's where you really get the depth of both of those disciplines working together in a very real way. <laughs> that's great. It, and I don't know about you, Jenny, it reminds me of the, the conversation we had in our first episode with Brian and Layton about how when you are walking down a street it's so much more than the paver stones do you feel safe do you feel like you have enough space to walk down the street there's so many more elements that go into it and to me like I can think more through this conversation about too how the landscape architecture and the civil engineering components that come in to contribute to that as well thinking about Victoria Street and Kamloops and the trees that run throughout and around Christmas they string white lights throughout the trees and everything is spaced perfectly. There's no like snow pileups because the sidewalks are sloped and whatever. Like it's it's all these elements that come in to just create this welcoming space that brings in active transportation. It brings in urban design. It brings in civil engineering. It brings in landscape architecture and more, I'm sure, as I will learn through more conversations that we have on this podcast. I love the way you described it, that there's many places that civil and landscape architecture come together, but streetscapes or corridors is where they shine. I really liked that uh, term because I think it reflects my own experience on corridors where you walk down them. And Katie, it was exactly what I was thinking when we were talking to, to Brian and Leighton about urban design and active transportation. And when done right, you like feel it as um, mm -hmm. when you're in those places. You can understand the intention um, that has gone into the design. Even if you're not like, it's totally not explicit and many people aren't thinking about that when they're walking down a street. They're not in the weeds like we all are at Urban on these different projects. But I just I thought that was a really maybe like an underdog example where I don't necessarily think people think at landscape and civil come together. The next question we, we wanted to bring up is around misconceptions that the two practice areas might have. And when we, we met as a, a crew before recording, it was brought up that LA, landscape architecture folks don't hate straight lines. It's a, it's a misconception about the practice. So we wanted to open up the space for, for both of you to share with the world any sort of misconceptions that 
people may have about landscape architects and the practice or civil and the practice and even the ways those come together. I think streetscapes is a, is a great example so far. Yeah, well, I can jump on the straight line one. Uh, you know, <laughs> I, I'll often hear there's no straight lines in nature and, you know, you can stand on the edge of a lake and see how the water settles out and creates level and you're like yeah there is a straight line <laughs> and you can look at uh, conifer trees how they grow straight or you know when other not when otherwise influenced but they want to grow straight and also how light travels right it wants to travel in a straight line unless it's bent by something and so there's reasons for straight lines and i think there's a probably an aesthetic that people associate when they hear landscape or landscape architecture that comes from a, a very residential suburban style of treating the land which is curving roads unnecessarily and curving beds around a house and you know it's think that aesthetic has become so uh, associated with landscape design as <laughs> over the years and and so you know I always feel like uh, I'm, I'm sort of fighting that assumption that that's what I'm trying to create. And then the other misconception is that I'm primarily focused, or and my colleagues are primarily focused on plants themselves as, as our dominant material and medium. And while they do play a large part, oftentimes uh, planting design is one of the last things that we do in problem solving a site. Once we kind of figure out how we're moving people, how we're moving vehicles, how we're moving water, how we're allowing for wildlife to move through and then turning radiuses and, and electricity and fiber and all kinds of, you know, all the complexities of the site, then we're able to start to reintegrate plants, especially into urban public space, right? Like if it's not that they're an afterthought, but they're oftentimes responding to um, a, a wider set of parameters and, and challenges that may not be necessarily apparent. So sometimes people will say, oh, well, what kind of plants are you going to put in this project? And it's like, well, I don't know now. And honestly, I don't care. We're not there yet. <laughs> Let's solve the space problems first, and then we'll figure out how to bring it to life in the best way. I'm going to pull on that thread, actually. It's a good misconception buster um, across the board, but just pulling on the thread around problem solving. Like we always tease, and if spend any time with engineers, getting an engineering degree, it's not actually about the content. Like really what you're teaching your brain to do is solve problems. Like that's what it's all about is solving problems. And so back to the earlier definition to my eight-year-old niece, she's actually seven, but at a barbecue, if I were explaining, okay, what I do, yeah, sure, there's hard deliverables, but it's really about problem solving with our clients. And so sometimes it's how do you respond to this like natural disaster or an emergency with the lens of engineering and the built environment? Or how do you plan for making your community a better pay, a better place? And really, what does that mean at the end of the day? Anything that contributes to making life better for residents and communities. Um, and civil engineering is I mean, sometimes we say when you're doing a good job, nobody notices. Like when my tap is running and my toilet's flushing, it means a civil engineer, obviously, and a ton of operations and maintenance folks are doing their jobs and doing them well, but you don't notice because it's working. Um, and so that intersection, when you're able to bring in landscape architecture, it almost enhances. So that goes back to like that form and function, but the landscape architecture practice or discipline allows the enhancement of something that just fundamentally works because the problems have been solved through 
thoughtful, strategic, good design and good practice and good professional practice. So civil engineering, sometimes our deliverables are invisible, but it's so much more than that. And I think when we get into conversations about the end product and the actual value and the impact that we're having on communities, if you want a career where you can impact the world, like civil engineering can do that. You might not see at the end of the day what your deliverables are doing, especially if you're doing them well, but like that's how you change community. That's how you shape and form like the very underlying fabric of what's happening in everyday life. And people just often don't realize it. So I think a misconception around like civil engineering is that it's not, sometimes it's not all pocket squares and rulers and graphs and (laughs) design drawing sets, as people may think. Um, There's huge potential and opportunity just to make the world a better place through this practice and through this discipline. It's really part of that heart and soul of of our physical world. So I think that's another, just wanted to pull on that thread Shasta brought forward. I remember in our conversations before too, when you guys were bringing some of these up, one that stuck with me, Amy, was you You said civil engineers don't want to concrete everything. I like plants. I'm a human. Um, is there anything that you want to build off of that as well? Are you sure that you don't want to just like pave over the flower beds and cut down the trees? Um, 100%. Well, also, I caveat, I could only speak for myself. I can't, you know, uh, no civil engineer can be painted with a very broad brush, though that often happens with professions all across our world and society. But maybe that just dives into, again, very fundamental, but worth worth saying, worth having airspace is that a civil engineer can be anybody and any person. And what is your definition of an engineer and who is a civil engineer? Like, uh, I'm a female, I'm a working mother, I love house music, I have really interesting hobbies that don't include calculating numbers of things. <laughs> like, uh, you know, I'm an extrovert, I thrive on connection with other people, like, not not necessarily a Dilbert. And some of the most interesting people I know are engineers. And so it's just what's behind the surface and what does it mean uh, as a human to show up? And so when you're there solving your problems with your clients and with the communities you work for, just because you come with an engineering hat on doesn't mean you're painted with a broad brush and that you just want to concrete everything. (laughs) (laughs) I feel my engagement specialist uh, lens coming into the the field right now where I'm just wanting to reflect back what I've heard. But two things that, that have stood out for me is not necessarily a, a Dilbert is a great uh, <laughs> podcast title. <laughs> um, I just thought that was a good example to Shasta. We were talking about the different ways that straight lines show up naturally um, in the world with conifers growing straight or light wanting to travel in straight lines. Uh, Amy, I think if there was a pitch for civil engineering ever in my life, I think you may have just done the best one and maybe sold me that civil engineering is uh, the best way to have an impact in in a community. It's definitely part of a toolbox. I will say that like it, it's there's it's one piece of many. I will put the caveat that like civil engineering in terms of our our physical world. So there's so much more, and I'm sure we'll get into that later today when we talk about things like placemaking and placekeeping, like the stories of a place and the the feel and your experience, Katie, walking down an urban street. You know, civil engineering can only go so far, and it's back to the beginning of our conversation, the strengthening of those practices together, like what landscape architecture brings to the table and enables in terms of possibility in a project and creating and building and reforming space, um, not only to make it function, but to to really impact people's day-to-day lives. So funny you should mention placemaking. <laughs> um, so funny. <laughs> 
a segue. <laughs> um, so <laughs> speaking of placemaking, maybe Shasta, I'll toss it over to you first um, and ask how placemaking shows up in projects that you work on. Sure. I would love to talk about that. Every place, every community that we work in uh, has its own uniqueness, its own identity, its own stories. Uh, and that might come through, you know, the, the social realm and cultural realm, or it might be uh, stories of the natural world. And it could also be evolving stories as we move forward. And so once we've solved the problems of turning radiuses and pipe sizes and what our curb heights are, then we can start to look towards adding a layer of narrative and storytelling into a space. We want to think about that human experience. They're not just moving through the space, but there's all these different positions that people might take in the space. And so each one of those different positions, whether it's walking or sitting or leaning or waiting, that gives an opportunity for us to communicate the identity and the story of a place. Each time someone crosses a crosswalk, uh, you can start to weave story narratives into that place. The things that we've commonly seen are obviously are like banners and uh, lights in trees and lighting plays, uh, I think, a big role in placemaking. And uh, look at every surface almost as uh, a canvas for, for art. Uh, and so the, the pitch for landscape architecture is if you, if you love stories and you love natural things and you, and you love people and you're creative, landscape architecture is a great way to make an impact upon the world because you get to weave layers of meaning and process together. Uh, in order to make sites whole and complete. That's super powerful. And it makes me think of community engagement as well and how placemaking is so closely tied to, you mentioned different modes of people moving through space, but also how people show up to different public spaces and the lived experience they're bringing into each of those places that we work in and how we get to connect with people and understand those in order to reflect them in those places as best we can and while still making the function work which is the key to the the problem solving piece that i think you you've brought forward amy and, and so have you shasta so that idea of, of placemaking resonates with with me for sure i love shasta's explanation and definition of placemaking another term that's been introduced to me more recently through a project that includes a lot of landscape architecture and engineering uh, is placekeeping and specifically speaking to when we're working with deep history um, and especially our indigenous communities all land has a story and it has a history and so how do we how do we keep that how do we maintain um, and bring forward and keep alive the place uh, and what it means to so many people and so many generations over time and how to respect that space and it's a really cool I'm, I'm always learning um, and I learn so much every time I work with landscape architects but it's a really cool lens when you bring it to any project um, in terms of how you create that experience and it's funny Shasta you mentioned kind of like the order of things when you're like once we figure out turning radiuses and curb heights and like my engineering brain loves an a b c then d but at the same time I think placemaking and placekeeping is so much more than just the icing on the cake it really is like the flavor of the cake like you got to think about it at the beginning you got to think about it at the beginning of building that cake and understand what are the different pieces I have to change and play with to make sure that that final outcome is congruent and speaks 
to each other altogether. So like engineering might be looking at the ingredients to say, here's what we need to make the cake work and to make it taste good. But what is that actual end user experience like for whoever's eating the cake? And what is the flavor? What is the icing? What are the pictures, the decorations? Like, but you got to think about all that stuff at the beginning and you got to think about how they work together at the beginning to really get your best you know, your best product and leveraging any space, whether it's completely built or enhancing whatever is completely natural or somewhere in between, which is what most projects are. What it kind of reminds me of, my experience with placemaking comes from an events background. My favorite example of placemaking is Burning Man. So just this empty piece of desert that for like a small period of time throughout the year completely transforms to this totally different place that this otherwise unremarkable unrecognizable piece of desert just comes to life this other example of this there's this small town somewhere in the states and i wish i had written it down prior to this conversation but they have this motorcycle festival that happens every year probably not this past few years because of covid but this tiny tiny unassuming town somewhere in the states gets this influx of like tens of thousands of motorcycles every single year of people like riding down to just hang out together and talk about bikes and yes thank you Blair Sturgis Blair knows exactly what I'm talking about um (laughs) you just sent me a little team's message here thinking to tie that back to kind of landscape architecture and civil engineering like it comes into the width of the streets and the infrastructure that you put in place to be able to handle this great influx of bikers. And I'm trying to picture too, in my mind, like what landscape architecture components could be brought in to enhance this fun motorcycle town experience. Like you're not just going to put lawns everywhere if people are going to ride bikes over them because that's just not going to work. There's so much more to your two practices that are represented in these areas like Sturgis or the desert and Burning Man. Like it's placemaking as a concept, I think just totally fascinates me. There's actually a project we're working on right now that demands a lot of the space. A big requirement is that it needs to be flexible. So, you know, at at one point in time, it needs to function like a broad park where a family can come with their young children and have a picnic. And at another time, it needs to function as a massive outdoor event space that can host like huge events uh, with stages and like festival style. And at another point, it needs to, you know, function. You think about climate. (laughs) What is it? How does the space become um, how is it made how is the place made in winter in summer and it it's just so interesting all the design parameters that go into making a space the most it can be and flexible to really serve uh, at the end of the day and when I think about placemaking I often think about memories so like as an end user when I put that hat on it's like okay if I if I go there if I go to Sturgis during this motorcycle festival (laughs) what's that like what's that memory that I build and have and keep and how is that place made for me in that time what is my experience at that moment and the pieces that go into to designing that but uh Sturgis I'm gonna have to look that up yeah it's it's (laughs) not a motorcycle rider but that's very interesting (laughs) it's on my bucket list to learn how to ride a motorcycle little known fact about myself (laughs) and so maybe once I I'm a I'm a biker chick I can go down to Sturgis can share a biker chick yeah 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 can you picture it (laughs) a little little bit (laughs) yeah yeah (laughs) 
I was not expecting placekeeping to then tie to motorcycle event, but I'm glad it went there. I'm really glad it went there. We have a few more questions for both of you. It's Um, a bit of a, I don't know if it's a left turn or a bit of a pivot, but Um, it's about aha moments, not to quote Oprah, but aha moments that you've had about your practice or yourself when you've been working with a landscape um, architect, um, Amy, architect. or uh, Shasta with a civil engineer. And we've kind of had l- little seeds um, of these um, things the come through in, in the but, conversation. But um, yeah, wondering if yeah, wondering when if you read that question read or, that prepared question or prepared an answer, if something completely like light bulb moment came to mind. Yes, I, I think so. Since starting my practice, I came into landscape architecture uh, very, maybe aggressive is too big of a word to use. I was very dedicated and determined to see cities become greener, more sustainable, more resilient in terms of water. And sort of my mentors and influences in in my profession have pointed out that there's a huge problem with impermeable surfaces leading to pipes and gray infrastructure degrading waterscapes, uh, watersheds, and water bodies throughout the world. And so, you know, that's been sort of my goal is to disconnect gray infrastructure with living green skin. And whether that's putting stormwater into silvicells or into constructed wetlands or into bioswales and rain gardens, it's kind of just been a, a big, big driver for me. And there's certainly um, been pushback frequently from civil engineers that I work with on projects. And so, you know, I can find myself in places of confrontation. And uh, I remember uh, several years back, Jeff Rice, who uh, used to work with us at Urban and probably still does on occasion, uh, he said to me, you just have to be patient. And I didn't really understand what Jeff meant by that, but what I've come to understand in my practice is that I can argue with someone and sometimes I might win and get my way, but the outcome of that winning my argument in opposition to my team member uh, is not necessarily the ideal solution. What creates the best space and intersection between civil engineers and landscape architects is when we're kind of both playing for the same team with the same outcomes and we're both willing to fight for the pedestrian over the motorist or the the cyclist over the car or the habitat over the the development being more profitable like we when we're both sort of on that same page is when we have the best outcomes And um, sometimes winning an argument is not the most important thing. The most important thing is changing the hearts and helping my colleagues realize the potential for their impact is more than just draining a site. It's making a site function in a beautiful way with its environment and within the community that's actually regenerative, both ecologically and socially. And so... um, that's sort of my focus these days is uh, I, I don't have to win the argument. I would rather lose an argument than have an outcome that's not ideal because we are on the different page. I won't let myself be <laughs> stressed about, oh, is this project as green as it possibly can be? 
I try not to worry too much about it because I recognize that, you know, we're in this for the long game. The aggregated effect of our of our work is what's going to count. And, and I try to see the forest and not the trees in my practice. A great perspective to bring when working on these collaborative projects that are very human-centered, very environmentally focused, and how when you keep all those perspectives in mind, things are less stressful and produce better results. I just got to say, Shasta, I, oh, I appreciate you so much. We opened up this conversation and it was, you know, describe your job. And there were a couple things that you said that I'm going to go back to right now, because when I am going to talk about my aha moments and things I've learned specifically from landscape architects while working with them, they tie back to exactly what you said. So that's it's kind of perfect circle. I'm going to start with the example of the very first time we met or the project that we worked on together first. Shasta and I, and this is way back when, we're talking over a decade here, were tasked to design and work with a municipality to look at essentially some like stormwater infiltration systems um, along streets paired with traffic calming measures. So we had this beautiful blend of, okay, what do we design from a civil engineering perspective in terms of how this curb bump out looks, how it functions, where does the stormwater go? What about the catch basin? What about the depth? And then the other element of, well, how do we actually fit this into the streetscape and the design? Like what kinds of plantings and how much water and shade and sun and what do all these things need and siting, location, context? Through that project, I learned so much and I learned there is so much I don't know. And I'm learning that all the time, every day. But I there's more and more I don't know as, as the days go by, or at least that I realize. And so one of the things with working with landscape architecture is honestly, it's just respect for any other profession and professional that has such a deep, deep understanding of so many elements we as individuals may not consider or be aware of or know. And so it just goes back to the complementary pairing of something like landscape architecture and civil engineering, where I come to the table knowing a lot. And sometimes I forget what I do know, and that others don't know those things and the importance of communicating those things. But also that other people are bringing so much more to the table than you could probably imagine, kind of like the iceberg concept. And so what, I, what I've learned, I guess, uh, a couple key things in terms of working with landscape architects, and you talked about this at the beginning, Shasta, you used the word weave, like in terms of weaving a site together with those three pieces, Jen visualized the, the Venn diagram. I've always considered myself pretty good at the high level, like the big picture and getting a getting a tackle or a feel for, you know, what does this whole site look like? Or what's the broader context? What's the problem for the client? How do we solve this? But looking at a picture from a a high level, whether it's 50,000 feet or 30,000 feet, isn't the same as as connecting everything within the picture. So just because you can zoom out and see the whole thing, there's also the extra step of connecting it. And so what I've learned and I continuously appreciate about working with landscape architects is there's just oftentimes such an innate ability to weave things together. And so the concept of flow is the note that I made for myself when I was trying to answer this question, like the concept of flow and actually connecting um, things together through a site, through a design, through the solving of a problem, and that it's different than the bigger picture. It's complementary to that. The other thing is just back to your comment on coloring and uh, drawing. And the other bullet I have here about what I've learned from landscape architects is that visualization is so important. It is. It's a human language. Uh, we are visual creatures. And so to be able to con like communicate the vision for a project or your design ideas or what this means in terms of how a space is going to look and feel at the end of the day, being able to produce a rendering to that effect, some sort of nice visual 
compliment is just so important and a really big part of working with with clients and communities. Just back to that that depth of understanding and, and what everybody knows, like we all have our own lenses and perspectives on the world and it's based on our own experiences and who we are and, and what we know. There's an exit ramp off of the main road on the way to my house. And every time I drive the exit ramp, I notice the curb because it is very crooked and it's a very awkward, horribly designed curb. And I notice it. I notice it every time, every time I drive home and I can't not. It's just, it's just something my eye sees because it's, it's part of what I know. It's part of the lens through which I view the world. When a landscape architect looks at something, Shasta, I don't know what you see when you're walking down the street, but what you see and what you experience and just what everybody knows and feels and ultimately uh, absorbs through a place at the end of the day and just giving space for that all the way from concept to completion, I think is, uh, is really important. Well, one of the things I appreciate about working with uh, civil engineers is the Dilbertness. I know you're not a full Dilbert, but I think Partial I think yeah, your command of of mathematics is something that gives me the confidence to focus some of my energy on that creativity and on that storytelling and narrative. Because when we're working together, I don't need to think about everything at that same level, and it starts to sing together. You know, like these harmonizing notes uh, in in creating uh, space. I know you're not only a Dilbert, but I will <laughs> take the Dilbert <laughs> when I can get it. Uh, yeah, I always gotta check myself. I always say my mind works in tables, and so there's so many times where it's like, well, if we put it in a table, I find if I had a nickel for every time I said that, it's like, well, no, just because my brain works that way, it does not mean that is the most effective way to communicate to others. I'd say last but not least, working with landscape architects, I often find myself, and this is the very first bullet I wrote when answering this question or kind of thinking about it. What are your aha moments? Oh, that's a cool idea. Like, honestly, every time, all the time I'm working with landscape architects, like, that is so cool. Or like, how did you think about that? Like, that's, oh, that's going to look so good. It's that, it's just, I don't know, the extra layer. Love it. Appreciate it. Well, I think it's a official. official. Uh, well, engineering, uh, engineering is a thing. <laughs> I think from the very beginning, talking about the complementary nature of both these practices, uh, the, uh, metaphors of the metaphors of a good marriage, a good marriage to a whole to brain, to appreciating the creativity, but the landscape spring, the problem solving that um, I mean, both professions bring. I mean, I, I don't uh, want to say it again, but the Dilbertness, the pocket the squares, the math um, that um, they can bring to these these pieces and. We want to make sure that it's that last question at the end of the survey or uh, the the, the last last piece of the puzzle. puzzle, If there's been something that you're like, I got to get this on the table. I got to share the news. Um, Is there anything that you want to make sure you get into the podcast before we we wrap up? I have a a thing that. I have a, a thing that I, I, I think a lot, and I, I don't know if I say it enough, but it's that I... Man, I can't even follow that, that up. Like, 
humans on our planet will be determined. Oh, just is so good. Twenty-eight agree. I, like and very, very insightful. Water My is, is going to be not as deep. Uh, <laughs> makes thriving possible. But I think just one and thing to so touch on in so much of what we talked about today are and so deeply connected our to water professional practices, what we do here at Urban, the communities um, we work I, with and I who our clients are, the projects that we deliver, the problems that we solve, it all that is based and, and in the foundation of context. For our children. So there are so many things about our practices <laughs> and our day-to-day work that we're doing. Sure, the math will stay the same, um, but how that math is applied will change. Sure, the properties of a certain type of plant are going to be consistent. I mean, it might be different on climate zones. Shasta, you can correct me. <laughs> but it, it depends on on why it, it makes sense for a particular space or not, or why it makes sense for a particular client or not. And so that's maybe tying it a little bit to if we're kind of grounding this conversation in the broader sense of of urban and our practice and and our impact, the success that we find in our disciplines and, and in our delivery is based in our, our understanding of context and ability to work within that context. So I think that's just a really important piece to consider because you could have a particular project uh, that is all the same components, landscape architecture and civil engineering with one client in one region, and you could have the same scope of work with another client in another region, and they're going to be two completely different things. Knowing how all the parts are really pieces of a whole and tools in your toolbox to really create an outcome that is contextually relevant, meaningful, and important for any client or community that we're doing work with. You said it. <laughs> you said it. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say those are two really beautiful ways to end the podcast. I, I can't think of a better way to think through water and the importance of water and how those tie to both professions in such a deep way. Um, and the way that you look into your work and then also context context um, and um, even and those two even things those are tied things. intimately together thank you both for bringing those up for bringing and those up that. and sharing that um, yeah I think that's a beautiful way yeah. to, to kind of tie tie the bow on engineering. one of the continuing things that we like to end this podcast with and I say continuing like this isn't only the third episode. It's something that we, we hope to continue throughout and we've done in the first two is to get both of your opinions on what a game changing trait of a good consultant is. So whether it is keeping water always in mind in all of your practices or keeping context at the forefront of all the decisions that you make, maybe Shasta, I'll toss it over to you first and and to, to answer what what your game-changing trait of a good consultant is. Okay, Katie, I think the the game-changing trait, and I think for, for us, uh, it regardless of our discipline, is to be a good listener and not listen passively, but listen deeply for the underlying context of of how our clients in a in a place is communicating to us and so that might involve our ears it might involve our eyes it might involve any of our senses and it might also involve you know just sort of time in a place that's sort of unprogrammed but learning how to listen and and hear deeply and letting you know that be the foundation for problem solving is the game changer that and just a deep sense of caring for for the people and places where we work 
this is why I love you. Our answers are very similar. I just wrote different words. But the, the meaning, I think, is the same. If I had to use one word, Katie, to answer your question in terms of what a game-changing trait of a good consultant is, I would say curiosity. And that's essentially what you said, Shasta, like really uh, and true curiosity, which involves having open ears and listening um, and listening actively and diving into those interests um, and those those curiosities that really come up to see where things go. If I had to use two words and expand on that, I'd say understanding people like that, that fundamentally makes a strong consultant because you understand the context, you understand your clients. Um, and part of that takes things like active listening and curiosity and development of that understanding, which is always evolving. And then I used three words and it was being a genuine human. That's four. being genuinely human, whatever. <laughs> again, that just comes back to the caring. And again, you said it, Shasta, we're saying the same thing, just using different words, you know, showing up as you are, who you are uh, with what you know, and, and an open mind, um, to learn and really dig in and understand the context and, and apply your best and work with our amazing team of professionals. I was thinking about a game-changing trait for a good consultant. Um, and I actually, I answered that question to be a good consultant at Urban or for for the world, because I, I truly think that the way we go about our business as a consulting profession is unique. Um, and so those answers are unique to our culture and who we are and how we approach business and how we interact with the world um, in a very broad brush. The answer may not be the same. There are other ways to consult that are maybe involve less curiosity, uh, less genuine human connection, less connection to context. But I personally don't think that's of the best benefit of the world or the communities that we're trying to serve. So the caveat to my answer is that it's a good consultant in the urban context uh, and how we do business. And I would add to my answer, it takes a great deal of courage uh, to to be a consultant. And with that, you kind of need a rhino skin. <laughs> the ability to be resilient to 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 challenges. And, and so um, I'm still trying to grow my rhino skin. <laughs> but I'm working on it. There's a lot of difficult situations out there and there's a lot of hard problems. So doing the best with what we have and in the context that we have and being resilient to challenges because not all of our projects are neat, tidy little packages. In fact, none of them ever are. There's no scope of work that is completely unchanged and perfect from day one and delivered all the way through. Um, and that gets into the nuts and bolts of consulting in general. We are a service provider at the end of the day. So of course, there's rough edges uh, to the work that we do, but being resilient uh, to be able to move through that with grace and make lemonade, as I say, um, out of whatever lemons we run into. Well, I think that's fantastic. We have our, our salt and our pepper and our food and our drink and our lemons and our lemonade. And my little storytelling brain loves all the metaphors. I feel like I'm thriving in this right now. I just want to say a big thank you to you both for coming to this conversation with an open mind and for showing up with a curiosity and a care to explain a little bit more about what you do and how it relates and some of the more nuanced things underneath that in terms of mindset that I think we can all learn a lot from. Thank you so much thank for having you. us. Yeah, this, is, uh, this has been awesome. Really enjoyed the conversation. Yeah, thank you so much. It was really fun and awesome. entertaining. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you've been listening to Urban Speak, created by the team at Urban Systems. If you have thoughts on the topic we discussed this episode, or if you have suggestions for future episodes, 
please connect with either Katie or Jen. Our doors are always open.